All right. Uh, welcome to episode two of season five of Two Crees in a Pod. And uh, we are really excited to have uh, two really special people join us today. Uh, we have Joel Cardinal and Mylan Tatusis that are joining us. And um, before we ask Joel and Mylan to introduce themselves, I'll just preface uh, you know, this by uh, just stating that we are uh, going to have a storytelling <laughs> uh, episode where um, we share our lived experiences uh, about a number of tender topics. And, uh, and we want to be mindful of that, that we, we want to recognize that these are tender topics and we want to recognize that, um, that even within these tender topics, we still need to have conversation. And um, the four of us are, are going to do that today. So Joel, do you want to introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. Joel Cardinal Natsiga-san, Virginia. My name is Joel Cardinal. I am Terry's younger brother. Um, so just from that, you probably know a little bit about me. I'm from Sad Lake. I'm the youngest, best looking, smartest. You know how that all goes. <laughs> I'm just uh, super, I'm just super grateful to be here. Uh, I've been living in Vancouver for the last six years, and uh, both Amber and Terry's podcast and Mylan's podcast. Uh, whenever I was feeling kind of disconnected, you know, not around my people, I turn your podcast on, listen, just hearing your voices, voices totally helped. So I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Thanks, Joel. Mylon, how you doing? Yeah. Uh, I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here. Uh, yeah, a little bit nervous because I know we're recording this on the fly. <laughs> um, but yeah, my name is Mylon Tatusis. I'm from Poundmaker Ancient Reserve, Treaty 6 Territory. Uh, formerly, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Saskatchewan. I have been in this phase for quite some time, but working my way through it. Um, like Joel said, I'm also a podcaster, I guess. Started a podcast during the pandemic, Radical Narrative. And yeah, yeah, I enjoy listening to Two Crees in a Pod, and it's great to be on here. Awesome. Yes, please tune in to uh, Mylan's podcast, uh, Radical Narrative. Lots of good conversation happening there as well. Um, and so we want to start this episode uh, with a bit of a story. And uh, Terry and I have had uh, many, many conversations about... Um, again, some of the topics that we want to cover today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this morning, Terry and I were having breakfast and just sharing conversation. And um, I told this story and um, Terry asked me to share it again. And so many years ago, and of course, one of my exes is involved, but whatever, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> of course. <laughs> But, um, but uh, him and I were driving from somewhere and we were talking and uh, I, in that conversation, uh, there was some elements around um, non-Indigenous folks who uh, take up space. And when we were having this conversation, he shared this story with me um, and he told this story about how, uh, um, you know, he was uh, going into ceremony. Uh, with with someone with um with one of the lodge holders, and he would be invited 
you know, consistently to go and help this, uh, this lodge keeper. And so every time he would go into the lodge, he would um, be asked to sit near the, the lodge keeper, the elder, and he would notice uh, a Muniao, uh, a non-Indigenous, a white settler man uh, at the ceremony. And that man was in charge of the fire. And uh, he would watch this man. He said, I would watch him. Like, I would really, really observe him. And he said, time and time again, you know, this man kept showing up. And so he said, I finally asked my, my, my elder, my mentor, I asked him, what's he doing here? Why is he here? And uh, that elder responded to him and he said, watch the way he tends the fire. And he said, see the way he's doing it? He, he's learned that and he does it with great care. And he said, but that's as far as he'll ever get here. He will never go any farther than that role right there. And he said, he'll never be in your seat or my seat or the seat over here. He said, that's as far as this man will go. And he said, and he's worked hard, you know, to, to learn this role and he takes care of that fire. And he said, and I watched him and he was right. You know, he did take care of that fire. He did do it really well. You know, he was careful. He was mindful. He was respectful. And he said, but I recognized that my reaction or my response to seeing this man in ceremony, holding that space, um, made me really uncomfortable. And, uh, and he said, and then I had this, um, when he said this to me, he said, I recognize that, you know, part of my response or reaction to him may have been out of, you know, my own insecurities, uh, for example. And it had me really thinking, and this was years ago, and I'll never forget that story because it's, it still, it still comes to me every once in a while. And I'm like, okay, what comes up for me when I hear that story? Okay. And so I want to start our conversation with that around, you know, what, what are some of the things that come to, you know, both of your minds, Joel and Mylan, you know, when you hear that story, like, what are some of the things that you think about, you know, when I tell that story or when I, when I share that story that was gifted to me and that was a teaching moment for me. And, uh, you know, what are some of the things that, that come to, come to your mind? I can go first. Um, you know, I, we talked before the podcast started and we were having a conversation about certain topics, but what's coming to mind is something a little different. Um, and I, I didn't include in my introduction that I'm two-spirited. And um, I've only started identifying as two-spirit in the last four or five years as I've been leading into um, our culture. And before that, I just identified as gay. Um, what immediately comes to mind is how I never felt like as a two-spirited man, I had this space in those ceremonies. And there are non-Indigenous folks who are very much welcomed and taught the teachings that I've never been taught. And so that's the first thing that comes to mind when I hear that. Yeah, yeah, that's important. Thank you for sharing that, Joel. Yeah, yeah, that's really important. One of the things that comes to mind for me in terms of how I navigate this is, I mean, I, I, I'm really super mindful of um, talking publicly because there are white people out there who listen to these things, right? <laughs> um, really? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, 
the reality for me though is I, I, I'm super mindful and, and conscious of this conversation happening publicly, but I would say that for the most part, you know, majority of our ways of life are really welcoming and we welcome people, right? If someone needs help, we, we help them. That's, you know, one of our, one of our ways of going about things. Um, however, for me, you know, I really look at what, what takes place in somebody's life to, to get disconnected to the point of where they have to find something else. And I don't know who said it, but there's a quote that came to mind. I tried to Google it real fast. But but for me, like, especially with like friends and colleagues, I always encourage people to go to where their roots are deepest, um, like find that heritage or find that family lineage um, or a way of life that that speaks to them. Um, but to, to add on that is like I'm super for me, like if someone comes and needs help, they need help no matter what. Right. Um, however, at the same time, yeah, I'm just like super mindful of 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 how does this person get here type thing? <laughs> like, what's their story? Yeah. And and to build off what, what uh, Joel said is I definitely recognize that there's also a privilege that a lot of settlers have, or non-Indigenous people, um, predominantly like in North America, to be able to travel and navigate and experience things. Because one, they potentially could financially afford it. And two, they're displaced to begin with. <laughs> So it's like they're they're not obligated to a specific land or land-based practice or a territory and like that's where that live laugh love narrative comes into play right they all go to india or they all go to like different territories or they go to south america and do ayahuasca and it it, it comes across as a very new agey hippie narrative and not to judge their like spiritual journey sure you know whatever path creator puts you on wherever you're going to get help and the answers you need. But for me, that doesn't sit well as an indigenous person because I have obligations to my land and territory. I have obligations to my way of life. And, you know, that, that's a big reason why, like, you know, a lot of us um, choose to stay um, physically in on our landscape um, to be mindful of, you know, the careers we're choosing in terms of how far we can go and can't go. Um, and I don't really see like indigenous, non-indigenous people um, think that way sometimes so it's almost like it's almost like they're doing experiential learning <laughs> uh in in a situation where I, I feel like it's it's not appropriate but again at the same time i don't judge like that's just my observations in terms of my lived experience and navigating the world mm -hmm. you know when i think about when i've thought about that story and how i've had conversation with amber in regards to that specific story um is that I think about it more in the academic setting. And that's where I, I place it in the sense of when we have non-Indigenous folks coming in to do Indigenous research, for instance, right? And so, or allies coming in to support some of the Indigenous initiatives within the university, um, that there is a role that they have in terms of their supporting role uh, with the Indigenous folks who are leading that work. Um, and oftentimes we have seen, and you know, we have seen um, non-Indigenous people filling the spaces within academia where they, they are the director of Indigenous initiatives, they're the director of Indigenous centers. Um, you know, and oftentimes we hear that, you know, when, when it's challenged, we're told that, you know, that there is, there's nobody applying, that there isn't anybody qualified or this specific person, even though they're non-Indigenous, 
non-Indigenous have committed their 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 lifetime of you know research to Indigenous communities, and they have those uh, connections in community. And I think you know the struggle that we see within our institutions is that we have non-Indigenous people taking up Indigenous spaces where we need to have Indigenous people leading. Um, you know, my position previously uh, in my um, institution uh, was held by a, uh, a non-Indigenous woman. Um, and I think that, you know, when everything kind of shifted and we came in and we were, you know, building this team, uh, Indigenous team, um, it was very, people were asking a lot of questions and, and we were very vocal about the importance of Indigenous leadership. Um, and I think that, you know, people would ask, you know, a year down the road, how are things getting done so quickly? Or how are things moving along where they were just kind of sitting for a while? And again, I think that when we do the work with community and it's community driven and it's Indigenous led, um, that it's, you know, again, founded and, and foundational in, in ceremony that we're able to um, do it in the most meaningful way. And so when I think about that story, I think about, you know, non-Indigenous people as allies coming in to do the work with Indigenous people, that they also recognize their role, that they also recognize the role in not taking up some of those spaces, um, which we see. We see too often within our institutions. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. My relationship to too is definitely institutional, where you see non-Indigenous people take up too much space, uh, or and I guess that ties into pretendian conversations too. Is pretendians tending to go really hard in the formal uh, academic setting or in the professional setting? Teams? Was that the we calling them teams? Teams. teams. <laughs> teams. <laughs> Yeah, they're taking up space and it's yeah. to the point of where it's almost it, it is performative like if you ever seen a pretendian perform in an institution it's wild it's like twilight zone weird <laughs> and you kind of get the vibe that they're bullshitting yeah. <laughs> uh, and they're really forcing these things and and i say that as somebody who grew up in my community and living in my territory and you know have the lived experience of surviving colonialism it, it is really cringy and they're taking up those spaces and at the same time the reality is, is, it, is they don't have those land-based relationships. <laughs> they don't have those physical land-based relationships or are maintaining those kinship ties to community. Um, and it's really performative. And I say that with a caveat because I do know now we're getting like an increase of like, like Facebook hunters and people who are starting to, to like position the land as a, as a brand almost. Yeah. So I say that with a caveat because that's starting to sort of become popular now. It's like, well, if I could position my social media as maintaining this lifestyle or you know living this way then then i could pass like the fact checkers but it's still kind of a red flag it is a red flag and it still kind of comes across as really performative mm -hmm. and i think you know with pretendians they're faking it straight up like they're making it straight up in a lot of these institutions and organizations and a lot of grassroots people grassroots people tend to know this like we do know this yeah. um, people talk about it um, you know, coming at it from the USAS perspective, people have known and where there was red flags 
about Carrie Barassa, you know, prior to everything coming out, <laughs> people right. had conversations and people were, were connecting dots, but it, it doesn't seem like it becomes uh, a major problem until indigenous people tend to call it out and uh, I guess go on the offensive with it, but also defend who we are. And then it tends yeah. to become a problem, but why wasn't a problem like five years ago? Why, was, why wasn't a problem 10 years ago? Right. Yeah. Joel, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I think um, to answer the question, like, why was it a problem? Like, I, I was at a, I listened to Terry and Amber present at a conference in Hawaii. And the one line that Amber says, I, I've repeated, reconciliation is really sexy and everyone wants a piece. Yeah. It's because there's money connected to this work that hasn't been there, you know, prior to a decade ago. Mm -hmm. Yep. So for me, there's a lot more um, in this capitalist system, a lot more reasons that people would want to be associated <clears throat> with it. Uh, but for myself, I, I also work at a post-secondary institution, um, uh, a small faculty role with them currently. But in the last um, in the last 13 months, I've resigned from two positions at two different post-secondary institutions because of extreme discomfort of having to work under and with people who are very clearly committing identity fraud. Um, and it's been really challenging because as a person who tries to like prioritize good relations, it's, it becomes really awkward because what I find with um, these types of individuals in my experiences, they like, kind of kill me with kindness. Um, and it comes to a point where the, a friendship starts and I've realized that this relationship is giving them credibility. Yes. And I've had to detach and completely step back and resign from positions. <laughs> oh, you hit the nail on that. <laughs> yes, Joel. And thank you for that because, you know, one of the things that I talk about in my advanced practice course uh, is around performative. That's how we start the course. We started with performative allyship. And we talk about what are you gaining? Is it social capital? Is it economic capital? Is it what is it? What are you gaining from being an ally? And if you are benefiting mm -hmm. directly from the relationship you have with equity seeking groups, whoever they may be, if you are gaining something and benefiting from and profiting from that relationship, that's <clears throat> performative allyship period. And like, and that is so harmful and it is so dangerous. And like Terry and I have had our own experiences of that where, where I know, like, I, I know I've got, I've got it out. <laughs> <laughs> like the smudge. There's, but it is hurtful. Yeah. You know, like we've, we've had relationships with people, you know, in our scholarly work, and in our professional work who have um accessed who have used us who have accessed indigenous women's knowledge to capitalize mm -hmm. and to sell it and it's hurtful it's harmful and it's hurtful and i and i can't express that enough like around how you know people's real lives are impacted by that and, and, you know, and, and, you know, I know the four of us know, but many, maybe many listeners don't, is that 
like our people, Indigenous peoples, have been forcibly left out of or pushed out of decision-making spaces for a very long time. We've only been, you know, you know, given the right to vote without any real life consequences historically 60 some years ago, 62 years ago. And so we've only ever really had the opportunity to sit in these decision-making seats for a very short period of time. And so there's, there's a lot of work that we, that we want to do that we have been again, forcibly removed from or, or discounted. Um, and so I think that there's this like discourse of entitlement, you know, around, you know, um, well, you know, I'm here and I'm, I'm your ally and I'm, I'm going to do this work and we're going to do this together. Um, but if you're profiting off of our relationship, thank you for saying that, Joel. That's really important. I, I just thank you for saying that. It's really important. Because I think that leads into like one of the questions that you were talking about earlier about how do we protect ourselves? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I always felt like I had a, a good grasp or a good understanding that I would know if I was being used in the sense of um, within research or within, you know, academia. And I think that, you know, again, that kindness piece of building that relationship and then, you know, extracting what you need and then leaving. And I think that like that leaving that feeling and again, like it was a lesson for me, like I actually had to go through it to be like, hey, you know, there was a lot of learning for me in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I recognize that now and, and, you know, moving forward that, you know, it was a hard lesson. It was a hard lesson for me. Um, but definitely, um, I think that one of the other things that we touched on a little bit, um, and I was just looking at that report briefly. I didn't read the report because I knew USAS did a report uh, back in October, um, and I didn't get a chance to go through it. Um, But I went through, um, there was a piece on ceremony, um, and I just wanted to pull a uh, quote from uh, Kim Talbear, and she said, constant referral to ceremony is a red flag for pretendants. And I think about how I have worked with non-Indigenous folks um, in academia who have um, taught about, you know, ceremony and have lifted it in that way, um, but haven't actually, you know, been truly involved in that in that world or in that space or really experienced it within our communities. And so, again, I think that um, it's interesting because that that came up and then you know seeing that play out within our spaces as well and how that you know oftentimes that because we make connections that way i know i do (laughs) you know when when you know that's for me it's an immediate connection if if i know that people are comfortable or being open in those spaces because those are very sacred spaces like i i hold those spaces with high regard and i feel very safe in those spaces and so, you know, that's another piece where it's like there could be, again, that using that to get in, which is crazy oh. and harmful mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. so many levels. I think um, one of the um, ways that we protect ourselves, like the four of us are doing it right now. The four of us work for post-secondary institutions and we are very carefully choosing our words to protect ourselves. 
because what we've seen is that more likely than not, these institutions will stand with those people. Um, and so we're protecting ourselves right now um, by very carefully um, speaking. And uh, just to build off of what Terry was saying about um, ceremony, um, you know, I, within the last month, had asked an individual that I work with um, about their connection to community. And it was, it was uh, uncomfortable for me to ask, but I felt that I needed to, um, you know, start to pull the truth. No one was saying anything. Um, and, and one of the first things that came back was, was that they were blessed by an elder. And, and with Terry talking about ceremony, like with people that I've worked with who, who make these claims that the killing with kindness, they also shut me up with ceremony. They, they bring ceremony and I honor that. And I'm not going to bring in negative energy or challenge. I'm going to center ceremony. And I, I find that to be really challenging. And it really does um, put a stop to any of the questions that I truly do want to ask. Hmm. Miley? Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting that we're living in this time where, you know, we... we made our way into these institutions to navigate like the chaos of the colonial world, help our people the best we can, and then, you know, ultimately even find a way to survive. And now like these conversations are happening in these places. And it's wild to me because for me, like university and academia, in my framework, in my mind, it, it, in many ways, especially where I'm working in, in like formal academia, where I'm at, I, I still view it as very settler colonial. I still view it as, as very colonial in general. And the, these spaces, interestingly enough, are, are, haven't been designed for us. And, and for me, my approach in terms of surviving has always been like, for me, keep the sacred sacred. You know, my relationship to the land, my relationship to community, my kinship system, that's, that's my business. Like you'll never see me in a formal academic setting talking about that. Um, and I couldn't like, I mean, and I do battle, like I do formally battle or will call out, you know, settler colonialism and, and um, things I, I disagree with and dislike. Um, so that's my survival strategy is, is simply, you know, pushing forward, um, doing what I need to do to get done. Um, but at the same time, because these institutions have been, you know, settler colonial for so long and colonial, they're, they're trying to indigenize them. And that's where like that window of opportunity came in for pretendians to play the game or for individuals to want to capitalize off, you know, this era of reconciliation. And Indigenous scholars, we weren't dumb. Like, there was people talking about this becoming a problem years ago. And I was yeah. touching bases with, you know, colleagues in terms of, like, this is a big problem. Part of it, too, like, for example, when I first started my PhD at USASC, a few years later, they let students self-declare. Yes. And everyone was like, what? Like anyone could just simply self-declare. I don't think I ever did self-declare. <laughs> I don't think I'm formally recognized through like that process as being indigenous. I don't think I ever checked that box. But that later on came to shoot, shoot him in the foot because now they like look at what they're dealing with. Like a lot of people self-declared, um, positioned themselves as pretendians, positioned themselves as somebody who was indigenous or had community connections that weren't there. Um, and yeah, it, it was for it was for profit. It was for economic gain and and for you know accessing funds or resources or spaces that were specifically intended for indigenous people to try and navigate these spaces. 
Um, and it, yeah, it's becoming a problem now where it like, like, I don't know, my go-to phrase would be like, it's really cringy. So it's like, you don't really necessarily want to be involved with it um, because that's, that's how bad it is. <laughs> like you don't want to get involved formally with it. Um, there's a phrase on this documentary I was just watching a few weeks ago where, where <laughs> I don't know if I should say it on here, but it's really bad, but it stuck out to me. Um, it's not bad, bad. Oh, then go ahead. If it smells like shit and you touch it, you smell like shit. It's <laughs> <laughs> not so even bad. <laughs> but for so that's that, that's for me. And it's it's a Netflix documentary. Maybe people listen to it, but I kind of just vegged out and watched it one evening. <laughs> when that guy said that, I was like, oh man, that's that that's true. <laughs> like that's true. Like there's some things I just won't get involved with formally. And, you know, my strategy for survival is to get food, get by. And that's really unfortunate because one of the big things I also wanted to mention was that we can't let, like, the pretendian conversations take away from the toxicity that exists in academia. And I feel some a lot of people that I talk to, colleagues, friends, other students who are, you know, making their way through, feel that it is um, because it's becoming a moral, it's becoming a moral battle. And it is an ethical battle, I would say, but at the same time, yeah. we still have to, like, do the work to make these spaces safe for indigenous people, um, yeah. for indigenous students, and to ensure that that there's a quality in the work that we're doing as educators, and while at the same time, you know, uplifting and supporting those who need our help. Um, because at the same time, you know, there's still students crawling their way through to get out of these institutions once they get in. And, and that speaks to like, they're still not a safe space in general. Um, so being super mindful of that and navigating that as an Indigenous scholar, like, yeah, the, the pretending battlefront that's happening in academia, very real battle, uh, very ongoing, um, but at the same time, you know, uh, there's a lot of us who are still simply trying to survive and get through. Yes, and I think about how I, um, that piece of survival, and um, I have another story. And I remember I was sitting with um, I was sitting with a very prominent leader one day. We were sitting at Kingsway Mall, and we were sitting there having some lunch. And this person um, was uh, is, is an Indigenous person, and was sitting there looking at me and saying, like, I, you know, here I am, you know, um, setting up the venues, bringing the food, bringing the people, and I'm. You know, we're paying for all of these spaces, these like literal spaces for people to rally and get together because it is so important for us to, you know, protect water, for example, or to ensure that our land um, is is protected and, and all of these things. And he's saying, and our people are not showing up. Our people are not showing up. And he was really frustrated. And I listened and, you know, and he, he said, I don't know what else I can do to make our people care about this. Like our people need to care and why aren't they caring? Um, and this frustration that he was having in relation to the monies that were going into creating this space and then our people not responding the way that he believed our people should respond. And I sat back for a minute and I'm like, you know, I think I thought about my experiences, you know, about when I was in school having my babies at the same time, working full time and going to school on the weekends and then pushing out children somewhere within that and having to, you know, do the things to survive. And I, I asked him to consider that, that, you know, a lot of our people are very much in survival mode. 
And much of our people are the first thing that when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they think about may not be about protecting our water. It may be, how am I going to feed my kids today? It may be, how am I going to prepare for winter? It may be, how am I going to, um, and, and I, and I would also say that those things are directly linked to, you know, protection of land and water. And that's very valid. But for many of the women I worked with in my social work career, they were, they have other things at the top of their minds. And those were all about some very literal daily survival um, around feeding families. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I, I think about that piece around um, survival and how, like you said, Mylan, it's so important for us. It's so important for us to think about, you know, how are, how are we protecting ourselves and, you know, Indigenous students within these spaces um and ensuring that they are not um that their very real life stories and experiences are not being um dismissed or dismantled through this conversation i i love that and i think that is really important yeah and that's where my heart is like my heart is with the students who are navigating Indigenous students who are navigating this and you know are coming out as scholars like i'm a reader and writer <laughs> And, and I, I love to read, I love to write. And for me, like, I, I recognize that in young students coming up and I acknowledge too that, you know, I'm a tribal college alumni. Um, I went to an indigenous-based program at UVic and, and now I'm at USASC and being in a very entrenched colonial space that's, you know, dropped the ball and shit the bed a few times administratively over the years has been really frustrating and so my heart goes out to like the first year second years third years and fourth years who are navigating through this institution and i also advocate for like the indigenous spaces that do exist um like educational foundations has an amazing land-based program indian teachers education program has an amazing department where they're actively working to mitigate the impacts of these traumatic spaces because they ultimately are like they ultimately are especially to the point of where um, it's not a safe space. Like, you know, the reality too, when I was a student here, a PhD student, um, the Gerald Stanley trial took place and they got, he got the non-guilty verdict. And the weeks after that verdict, campus was not a safe space. It didn't feel comfortable. Um, and there was some incidences that took place where um, there was a little bit of tension between non-Indigenous students and some Indigenous students. Um, and I was at one of those one of those situations too where we observed it, um, but it's a really weird space. <laughs> and also, yeah, they are taking advantage of us. Uh, these colonial institutions do take advantage of indigenous people, um, and they do utilize us to their benefit. <laughs> and we have to acknowledge that. And we can't dismiss that. We can't move away from shine around the conversation that, well, if they were capable of like indigenizing the acad academia, they would do it. But they can't, so they have to hire somebody to do it, or they have to create communities to do it, because the institution wasn't designed to 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 do what they're saying it can do. And I'm really cynical now with like the academic conversation, indigenization conversation, um, and part and partly because Pretendians seeped in there. Pretendians got all that money. <laughs> People who aren't even indigenous got all that money, and like that's the that's the fallout of indigenization. That's the fallout of reconciliation. Like Carrie Barasa at USASC is the fallout of those dollars, of those initiatives. How did that serve us? How did that actually help us? It's wild. Like when you really position it in terms of a trajectory and timeline, 
you know, since uh, since for the last 10 years, like since I've been in academia formally, um, this is no accident. <laughs> like the pretendian positioning themselves to capitalize, make like a bunch of money, get a bunch of research dollars is no accident. It's almost to the point of where that they knew the system enough to to benefit it in, the, in that sure. way. And we have young scholars with lived experience. We have grad students who are living in the inner city, you know, living the struggle and super smart, super well read. Um, but we don't have that support or we don't have those spaces to feel comfortable enough. And then you have like a pretendian walk in there <laughs> or a non-indigenous person walk in there, you know, hit a few home runs in that space. But the amount of effort just for us to stay in those rooms and get into those rooms and be confident it's, it's a battle, like it's literally a, a battle in terms of mental health, in terms of maintaining the self-esteem, maintaining the edge to survive. Like like you said, Amber, like we literally have mouths to feed. We have community connections to maintain. Um, you know, we're in a pandemic, uh, we're in a like a health crisis still, um, and, and parents are navigating that while being students. So it's like, there's so many social factors that play out that aren't being accounted for in the approach. But again, it's often the privileged pretendian who's navigating that and hitting these home runs. And that's what I question is like, why is this person hitting home runs? Because that's not an accident. Like what's really going on there? Figure out their, then you figure out, well, they've been privileged their whole life. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess that even spit, ties into this trauma conversation because even the, the vocal narrative that these pretendians have trauma, like I'm thinking about the Mary Ellen Triple LaFond, who was advocate or was saying she was from Norway House and grew up in Norway House, Manitoba, and experienced trauma there. It turns out she didn't, and just straight up lied about that community connection. Not saying like there's some family drama there, or not saying that she has um, new like marital kinship ties to an indigenous community. Maybe she does, but that story of trauma is what I took offense to, because my grandfather was from Norway House, Manitoba. Oh. My mom grew up there. Uh, for for till she was eight or nine and they did have to leave that community because of the community dynamics because of trauma and I was just doing some research too like a few like last month June uh, Remembrance Day my grandfather's cousin so one of my grandfathers from Norway House Manitoba Kenneth Scribe he actually died in, in World War II um, and he, he had multiple wounds during the war but ultimately succumbed to his wounds um, and, and ultimately died <laughs> while fighting in Holland and and I was researched his war records and I was reading it and you know seeing the reference seeing the doctor's notes and everything like that and seeing the letter they sent back to his his father I was like man this is like I feel I feel like that's why I'm anti-war like that's, I'm establishing an argument on, on being anti-war um like anti-imperial war and things like that um but it kind of hit home because it was really depressed it was a really emotional time reading those documents yeah. at the same time somebody a legal person like the judge was positioning themselves as coming from that community and so like the trauma of you know realizing oh i have a grandfather that passed away in the board from norway house manitoba and then at the same time we have a pretendian who's who lied about that community connection in the media right now it was an interesting like time for me <laughs> like my, with my mom's side of the family you know connected to my cousins having conversations with my cousins and you know, on, about this and on terms of, you know, the war and then in terms of the, um, the Mary Ellen Triple LaFond stuff. Um, so I, I mean, that's what I mean. It's like, we're navigating this in real time. <laughs> like we're navigating this in real time and, and these things come up and, and we're, we're surviving and, and obviously trying to thrive, but the pretendian just seeps in there and it becomes so 
it's really manipulative and sadistic to the point of where it's like it takes up so much space but it's clearly unethical like it's clearly unethical especially when they're in positions of administrative power right because now they're in positions of administrative power and people need to realize it's not just lying it's actually the all the work you did that people assumed you're operating from an indigenous paradigm doing we assumed like based off those community connections I'm assuming a lot of people assumed, right, because she was a judge, or most of these people are in research positions, are saying, oh, this came from an indigenous perspective, or this indigenous person's, you know, advocating or putting forward this information coming from the lived experience of being indigenous. Turns out they're not. So what was that lived experience? Well, that lived experience was being a settler growing up in Canada, which is like mind boggling, because now like this legal thought is coming from a settler colonial perspective when it was supposed to be in a position to help our people. So it's literally coming from like settler colonialism. And it's like, that's what's wild. Like, that's what's wild to me. And that's why, like, even looking at the media now, not many people are talking about it, but it's like, man, like someone has to review everything she's done. Like uh -huh. people assumed it was coming from an indigenous woman and it didn't. It came from a woman who grew up settler privileged in Ontario. <laughs> in uh -huh. Ontario. And that's, that's like, for me, that's that that's like that's the punch to the gut. It's like, wow, like it's it's all wrong. <laughs> it's not uh -huh. true. Uh-huh. Like that doesn't make sense. Like we assume like she was operating from an indigenous paradigm and she wasn't, right? She was straight up Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Period. <laughs> <laughs> Period. So it, it wasn't for it wasn't biased, so it's not for us in those situations. So that thought right. process, and I have, I have, I have, I, I don't know if I won't mention their name, but I have a colleague who's doing her PhD comp exams um, this year, this term, and, and she was quoting a lot of uh, Mary Ellen Triplofon, and uh, and that that's a shitty situation to be in because now she's talking to her committee members about like, what degree do I use this scholar, and that's a real time like this student who grew up in Ontario who is Indigenous who obviously has the history of residential school and trauma of colonialism, made their way, got into a PhD program, doing amazing work. But now, look at how much drama and trauma this Mary Ellen Triple Lafon caused this one student, right? Who's in a sink or swim situation. And she has a really good committee, I'm assuming, and is an amazing program and cool department head. Um, and I know she'll survive, but it's so unnecessary. <laughs> it's so unnecessary. Yeah, so where my head is going is, you know, this conversation and, you know, as we very carefully navigate with our words, you know, we I think we're all on the same page that it's uncomfortable calling, calling this out. It's not something we want to do. Um, and we also like have relationships with people um, that we still want to honor those experiences. But what what can these people do if they haven't been called out and they know? Huh. You got a Homer Simpson meme it, man. Like they got a Homer Simpson meme it and just like step back, like get out of there, start to exit the room. Yeah, but don't go into our bush. Go back to your bush. <laughs> go somewhere else. <laughs> Uh, that's a really good valid question it's like what do they do and I don't know I'm not in that situation <laughs> but at the same time it's like well stop taking up space like like if you have clear power if you have like if you're benefiting financially e-transfer me that money 
but, but but here's the the cold reality is that institutions are great at keeping records you know what i mean like yeah. they, they know like they're gonna know like if there's and i know people on in uh indian facebook have been commenting about like well how could you criminally charge these people for fraud well that's a really good trajectory to take like we should look into that we should look into how much money has this person made and benefited financially um because you know the majority of indigenous people we're not homeowners you know the majority of the indigenous people we don't have like we don't own property but then when you're looking at like career scholars and academic they have multiple homes they have multiple properties and it, it's kind of wild it's like the the financial discrepancy that exists just in terms of like the lived experience of indigenous people trying to survive in modernity compare that to the pretendian man like they're, they're making they, some of them made tons of money like tons of money it's wild. Yep. You know, I was thinking of like, <clears throat> going back to that question of like, if, you know, there's listeners out there, or if you're non-Indigenous, or you know, or are on the fence of thinking, like, am I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if what I'm doing is unethical, mm. you know, and you because I really think that people are unaware, you know, that they are unaware that they are, some of them are aware, but there is a lot too that are unaware that they are taking up space. And I go back to this quote um, by late Vince Steinhauer. And he talks about, and he said it, he said it in a circle. And then I read about it in, in uh, I think it was Leona's dissertation. Um, but he talked about, you know, about a bear. And like, and we know within our teachings, you know, we hear from elders that, you know, we, we can look to our animals to understand knowledge and that we can understand, you know, the ways of indigenous being and doing. And, um, and Vince was talking about the berries. Like you see the bear trying to go and act like a wolf. You see the bear, you know, walking like a wolf or do you see the bear, you know? And so he, what he was explaining to us was that, you know, who we are, especially within our identity as Indigenous people too, is that we stay in our lane, right? And we, we don't try to be something or someone else. And I think that, you know, for our listeners, you know, for people who are um, non-Indigenous, that you stay in your lane. And I, and I say that with gentleness because I think that, you know, it's, it's, there is a boundary there. And if you're unsure of that boundary, have that conversation with an Indigenous person um, that, you know, that is doing, is doing the work that you are trying to support. Because I think that oftentimes we see, you know, folks crossing that boundary and trying to be like the bear, they're trying to be like us in a sense, right? And again, they may come as indigenous passing, they may be in these spaces where they are um, acting in the sense to, um, I don't even know how to say it. Again, because I'm trying to be really mindful here. To make money. <laughs> To make money. To profit. To profit. It yeah. is. It is around profit. It is. It is. Self-profit. Yeah, it's really interesting, too, when you come at it from that perspective, because it even ties into, like, treaty. Like, it even ties into nation to nation. 
you know, you stay in your community, we stay in ours. And I think like pretendians passing off as being native is, is a pretty grievous offense because they're trying to put themselves in a positions of administrative power. And we're, we're from Treaty 6 territory. We have autonomy. We have our sovereignty narratives in play where we're striving for nationhood. So to come into that space and manipulate that narrative, that's crossing a line. Like that's really crossing a line to pass yourself off as indigenous and, you know, and, and try and, and, and position yourself to speak to our nationhood, our autonomy, our lived experience, our, our goals. That's completely wrong. That, yeah, that's a breach of treaty also, right? Like what visually comes to mind is like the two-way problem, right? Between the Mohawk and the Dutch. You stay in your canoe, we stay in ours, you know, side by side, here we go. Pretendians are actively breaching that. <laughs> yeah. breaching that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, we could have another political economic conversation around <laughs> capitalism and, and things like that. But, but I mean, that's that's one one perspective that comes to mind for me. It's like, man, like these guys are really um, being slithery with some of these things. And yeah. then also, I guess, like it's important to position too, like like uh, uh, Terry said it, where she said, you know, some people are indigenous passing. That's very real. Like decolonized Buffalo on Instagram and his podcast is is calling out, you know, Latin Americans who are who are brown, right? They look brown, like they look like they could be, you know, chilling out of power with us, but, but, <laughs> but technically speaking, you know, they're still settler colonial and have, you know, settler colonial lineages. And, and for our people up here in the North and Canada, I think we're just beginning to wrap our head around that, like wrap our head around that. Oh, you know what I mean? Like you could look brown, but you're not necessarily tied to an indigenous place or people, um, but he's, he's leading a charge on Instagram and I'm learning so much following that. Um, and then also at the same time, highlighting like there's, there's, we got white passing people in our families. Like that, that's the reality. That's the fact too. And then like, I don't, um, I'm not talking about white passing natives and I'm not talking about natives who are reconnecting. I'm, I'm this whole podcast. I was talking about, you know, those who are positioned clearly as pretendian, yeah. um, who are faking it with no specific lineage or tie. Um, yeah, there's yeah. tons to talk about with this, but I mean, I'm, I think I'm just hitting the main points I want to mention. Yeah. Joel, is there anything that you want to say in, in wrap up and other comments that you have? Um, I think just with, with, you know, this topic of, of pretendians, I, I think for me, like all of us just want to get back to our work. (laughs) We want to focus on our work and not have to be, um, impacted, um, by, this distraction um, that is impacting our work. And so I think for me, it's just, you know, building confidence to actually um, have that conversation with, with the people that we're working with in a humane and respectful way. Um, and I'm still still trying to get there. Um, and the challenge is, is, you know, I've established friendships and relationships with people. And once you understand they have a family and they have children, it, it becomes harder to, um, to to think of them in a certain way and you still want good for them, but at the same time, they're, they're not doing something um, in a good way. And it's trying to find that balance. And, and unfortunately for me, it's just resulted in, in kind of stepping back and um, letting things happen uh, the, the way that they're gonna happen. and, and Sometimes that's just the way that I've I've protected myself with not having to deal with the stresses is is walk away because another yeah. thing about us is being young, educated, indigenous. Uh, it's easy to find work. 
<laughs> sure is. And, and thank you for saying that, Joel, because I think about, and I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine and, um, and we were talking about a, a couple of things, but one of them was around how there's many people in this world who cross a lot of boundaries and they still do really well throughout life. Like they cross boundaries and do well, they cross boundaries and do well. And I remember like saying like, well, at some point, you know, someone's going to come and humble them. And that person was like, maybe they won't. And he said, then what? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, and then I think about how, you know, what you just said, Joel, around like that ethic of non-interference, right? Of like letting what hap what what's going to happen is, is, is not, it's not mine to carry what's going to happen, right? And so while I, I really appreciate the people who are doing the research uh, to dig up documents and to hold people accountable, I appreciate that work. That's a, that's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, and not only is it a lot of work, it's, you know, people stick their necks out, yeah. you know, to do that work. And so I really want to honor and acknowledge our people who are doing the work. I also recognize that, you know, are we going to, are we going to catch them all? <laughs> you know? I don't know. And so, so I think that instead of getting hung up for me, this is my, I can speak from my experience. Instead of getting hung up on, on that of like wanting to hold everybody accountable, I have to recognize that, um, that people are going to be held accountable at some point. I don't know when, and 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 who and and I'm not going to be able to decide that. And so I appreciate that, Joel. Like when I have the opportunity to to do my best to hold others accountable, I will. Um, but for for other times, I have to sit back and go like, yeah, like I. And it's not like I don't care. It's like I can't carry that. It's not that's not for me to carry. So I like yeah. that, Joel. Yeah, that's really important too, Joel. I really like that too, because I mean, especially like depending on your position in these institutions, depending on, you know, we like for me as a PhD candidate, I'm, I'm still technically like a, a PhD student. Like I don't, I don't have any formal academic power at the University of Saskatchewan. I tell my students that all the time. Like I, like I can't do much here formally, you know, I mean, I can make my, my, my Facebook posts or Twitter and try and socially mobilize and things. But for the most part, like we, we I don't have much decision-making power um, formally. Um, so I'm, I'm super mindful of my my battles. I'm, I pick my battles really mindful in the colonial institutions. And I and I definitely, for, for those who know me, like I definitely foster and focus more on land-based practice and, and, you know, simply just learning and gaining knowledge. And, you know, now I'm a full-time father and staying connected to my community like that, that comes first for me. So I, like if for something to, to start to begin to sort of, um, <laughs> Um, grow in an in academia, like around a pretending or something. Like formally, it's like okay, you know, arms reach. I know that's happening. I'm not formally gonna like go in there and lead a charge against that. Um, but I also agree with Amber too. It's like there's there's people doing important work. There's people who are doing the research. People who are in positions of of power who do have certain safety mechanisms in play. Like tenure profs should be talking about this. <laughs> like people who are tenure should be talking about this. And and especially at USAS, like I, I remember asking colleagues uh, the question is like how can we put so much burden on Indigenous students and grad students to like raise these issues when there's literally you know tenured faculty who are allies and who are Indigenous who could begin to yes. organize and mobilize um, yes. 
you know, whose bills are paid at the end of the month <laughs> and uh, who yes. maybe even own their home. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of wild. Like, I feel like things are kind of upside down in academia. Um, I feel like things need to be restructured. And I feel like, you know, the invention of AI, climate change is definitely going to re- force universities to restructure. Um, but yeah, that's my take is keep it at an arm's length. But then also at the same time, like plan your shots, <laughs> like be really strategic. I, I tell this to my students and people I work with is, is it's almost like if you have a quiver of like four arrows, you have to make those arrows count. You have to make those arrows count. So pick your targets and be really mindful of the battle you're going to do. Cause all you need is one good shot. The marksman over there, Terry knows this. So make that shot count, right? Because, and you don't want to, you don't want to have to, um, you don't want to waste those bullets. And you know, there's young people out there burning themselves out. There's activists out there burning themselves out. Every issue, you know, that's it's 100%. But if you only got those four arrows and you got to make them count in your lifetime, what are those battles? Like, what are those shots you're going to take? So you have to be really mindful, focused, uh-huh. and, and, and even, even train. Like, be mindful of how you would operate in those situations or how you would navigate certain things. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. One thing I'll say just about like, you know, we're talking about uh, people taking up space that shouldn't, you know, non-Indigenous folk or pretendians. But, you know, for me and in, in my role at, at the institution that I'm at, um, you know, I've even felt, am I taking up space from from the local Indigenous peoples whose territories uh-huh. that the institution operates on, um, you know, in, in Vancouver and the institution that I work at operates, you know, on Squamish, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, Seashaw, and Lilwat territories. There's five distinct nations, and I know that there are there are scholars within these nations. And um, where are their voices? Why are we not creating space for peoples whose territory we're operating on to take leadership in in these positions? And so I'm also conscious, uh, having lived in another territory. Um, questioning if I'm taking up space as well. Nice. Thank you. Um, I recognize that our our Anchor app has exactly two minutes left. <laughs> and so um, we want to thank you both for joining us this evening, for taking time out of your evening uh, to, to be with us and for highlighting some really, really key uh, and important pieces of this conversation. And um, we thank you both for for the work that you're doing as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Two Crees in a pod. Two Crees in a pod. Natani means. Yeah. Let's go. They pushed us to this point, frustrations of a common man Manifest the destiny, preach and pledge the promised land I'm stuck between taking my journey, live with no honor Like what's the use of my kids can't taste clean water A child born into a world, revolution's not a choice Fighting to be heard so we make them hear our voice Remember ancestors, anguish lightning in our veins Hear it in a language when they are kitchen for the rain I am product of people that persevere persecution Paint me so creator sees me if I go out shooting Experience our pain when our women disappear daily Anxious to be angry, pacifists might hate me Trolls on the internet constantly trying to bait me We move in silence, cover of the night Learning from the wolves in the forest 
tracking enemies in the woods Reincarnations of warriors riding for salvation Or are we false prophets when we submit to temptation Colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said Two Crees in a Pod.